new sermon series today um, in the book of Kings. First and second Kings will be in this book for a while. I will take a break for Advent, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing what the Lord teaches us through these books. The title of this series is Faithfulness and a Faithless Age. And to start off the series, I want to tell you a story or give you a metaphor. Um, you know, we've all been to the beach, and if you have children, you've had children at the beach, and a speech you give to your children before they get into the ocean is, hey, our chairs are here and our umbrella is here, and our hotel right behind us or our house or whatever we're staying in is here. And so you can go out and you can play in the ocean, but this is your reference point, and I need you to check back in every so often. That's the speech that parents give to their children. And as you go out and you play in the surf and you're having a good time, if you're not careful, the tidal pole can pull you down the beach. When I was growing up, I remember this happening to me. We'd go down to the Gulf Coast of Florida. I grew up in Alabama. It was easy to get to the beach. And I remember swimming in the beach, and my parents gave me the speech. They told me what to do. But after a while, I don't know how long, I looked up, and I was a long way from where I started. I was way down the beach. Now, in that scenario, what should you do if you're a child? You have a decision. You can decide, hey, my parents and what they told me, that's ridiculous. I'm having a great time here. I think I'm going to keep on swimming. You can do that. You can say, you know what, this tidal pull is actually kind of fun, getting pulled down the beach. It's, it's actually kind of a good time. I'm just going to see what happens. In either one of those scenarios, either one of those choices, by not obeying your parents, by not staying close to your parents, and by you know, calling what is actually bad for you good for you, it ends up being perilous for you. What needs to happen in that situation is the child needs to say to themselves, oh no, you know what, my dad and what he told me, my mom, what she told me, I should actually get out of the ocean. I should get onto solid ground. I should make my way back to my parents. And in that moment, we have a decision. I tell that story, I give you that metaphor because I believe it, is, it typifies our cultural moment. Our Father has told us, yeah, you can go out and you can live in this world, but you need to stay near to me. You need to check in with me. My word, I protect you. I am good for you. And in the cultural milieu, in our cultural moment, it's very easy for us to tell ourselves, this is okay. Being drugged down the beach, being, you know, having a good time in the culture, being slightly pulled more and more away from my father. Who is my father? What is my father's word to tell me what I should do? I'm fine. I can handle this on my own. And we end up in a perilous situation. You know, one of the most basic lessons we learn from the book of Kings is you have to learn to be able to call evil, evil, and good, good. It feels so elementary. It's something we teach our children growing up. But as adults and as children who grow up, we can rationalize. We can start to call what is good evil and what is evil good. And if we listen to the words of our culture, if, if we're just kind of cafeteria style pulling things together into a worldview, it's very easy to end up with something that looks nothing like what your father told you that you needed. It's very easy to justify that swimming in those cultural waters is actually fun and you're not going to go back to your father. You know, we have an example in Elijah and Elisha of a father for us, God the Father, 
who is faithful to us in a faithless age. What God does when his people are drifting down the ocean path is he sends his word to us. He sends a prophet to us. He sends his words to us here in the people of old. We're going to talk about them. He sends Elijah and Elisha, and ultimately he sends us Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes into, into the world as the great prophet, as the prophet who told us God's word in a faithless age, in an evil age. Jesus has told us, this is what my father wants for you. You need to follow after him. Now, in our culture today, if we choose to follow Jesus, like Jesus and like Elisha and Elijah, we will be, and you probably already are being marginalized for your faith. You will not be able to follow Jesus and also live a life where uh, you don't receive any kind of, of pushback or suffering or persecution for it in our age. We live in an age where you will be marginalized. Jesus was marginalized. Jesus came, was perfect, did everything perfectly, obeyed his father perfectly, and he was pushed out onto the margins, not just to the margins, he was pushed all the way to the cross because he was faithful. Because he was ultimately faithful, he was pushed to the cross so that for us, in our times of greatest need, in our times when we are most in a perilous situation, his grace can flow to us in our suffering as far as the curse is found. So we will find many lessons for us in the book of Kings about how to live, how to follow Jesus in a faithless age. As we look at the people of God then, and actually when this compilation was done, it was received by the people of God during the Babylonian captivity, which is also a culture that was just steeped in evil and sin, where they were pushed out to the farthest margins. It then was received by the first, the early church as they are being dispersed out into the world because of persecution, knowing that they serve a Christ who was persecuted like they were in the people of God of old. The, the Christianity that we have received, it lives on the margins. You find Jesus on the margins. When you feel like you're being pushed out to the farthest extent, and this doesn't feel like what you signed up for, Jesus is there. That's what he's there for. He's there on the margins for us. So today, as we jump into Kings, in this passage, the big idea here is even in a faithless age, even in a faithless age, if you will stake your hope on the word of the Lord, on the word of God, then he will not let you down. In a faithless age, if you will stake your hope on the word of God, if you'll get out of the ocean and go back to your father, he will not let you down. He has a never-ending supply of grace. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would meet us here today. We do live in a faithless age. Father, teach us to stake our hope, to put all of our hope firmly on solid ground, the solid ground of your word. Would you show us how you provide for us, even by that brook of your grace through this sermon? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So God sends his prophet to us in an evil age. That's the first point I'm making this morning. God sends a prophet to us in an evil age. And since we're just picking up in the middle of Kings, I'm going to do a little bit of historical background for you. I know if you're like me, you're like, whoa, the middle of Kings. What the heck is going on in that part of redemptive history? Well, what's going on? And Mark Jung, who preached last week, did a great job. I didn't ask him to do this, but he really teed me up today. 
uh, because he took us through a redemptive sweep of how God's heart has always been to draw the nations to himself. And as he was going through that redemptive sweep, at one point he got to 1 Kings 8, which is Solomon, and he's dedicating the temple. And this, in some ways, is seen as the highest point of Israel's history. Not only do they have all this land, now they have a temple and they've dedicated it, and their king is worshiping God in it. And Mark in his sermon said, oh, if this was only the last chapter of Kings. And he said, as we all know, it's not. There's about 40 more chapters in Kings, and that's where we are now. So what's happened nine, uh, ten chapters later is that Solomon goes on. That was the high point of Solomon's rule. Uh, He ended up um, falling in love with many foreign women, and incorporating the gods from these foreign relationships into the worshiping life in Israel. And we learn in 1 Kings 11 that God's assessment of this was that Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord wholeheartedly. The Lord was angry with Solomon. He said today, I tear the kingdom from you, yet not utterly, because of my promise to your father David. In 11.33, he gives, we get more insight into just far, how far down the beach Solomon had traveled. It says, For Solomon has forsaken me and become a worshiper of Ashtoreth, of Chemosh, the god of Moab, of Molech, the god of the Ammonites. Worse, Solomon had what is called syncretizing or bringing other religions into the worshiping life of Israel so that he was combining these religions with the worship of Yahweh. Solomon had become all-affirming, inclusive, and morally open, and he's bringing this into the church. So Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was the heir to the throne. He was in line to have all of the kingdom of Israel, and yet God raises up a rival for Solomon, Jeroboam, who's in our pastors, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam ends up leading the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Samaria could be called, which is the ten tribes in the north. And then Rehoboam ends up leading the two tribes in the south. So you have a divided kingdom. So God does this as punishment for Solomon's sin. Jeroboam leads the kingdom of Israel into even deeper evil. He builds rival gods. He makes rival holy feasts. He sets up a rival sacrificial system. He ordains rival priests. He is literally worried that the people of God are not going to follow him and are going to follow Yahweh. And so he's setting up a whole separate cultic system so that people will, through that system, follow him as their leader. Now, how does God respond to this? He's not happy with Solomon or Jeroboam and their all-affirming nature. God is not all-affirming. God has standards that are different than our culture or the culture of the day. And so what God does in this moment, he tells Jeroboam, these so-called priests who are making so-called sacrifices on so-called altars at so-called feasts, will themselves, the priests, be sacrificed on the altars that they have made? So if you want to know whether or not God is a God of justice and God is jealous for the worship of his people, um, he is. He will not allow his people, he has promised He promised his people and he's promised us that he will make sure that there's a remnant of his people that will follow him. And so God does this work to destroy these rival gods and systems. 
he wants to win us back. So after Jeroboam, each northern king is worse than the one before. You'll read about these guys, Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, and now we get to the son of Omri, Ahab. So why I'm telling you this story is not only is it helpful to know, but you have Ahab, and in the very opening uh, start there to the passage, it says that Ahab did more evil than all the, the ones that were before him. Now, that is a massive statement. This guy did an enormous amount of evil. A contributing reason for that is his marriage to Jezebel of the Sidonians. The reason why Ahab married Jezebel is because uh, the Sidonians promised some kind of protection militarily and economic stability. And so uh, Ahab would do anything for that. And so he will ally himself with Jezebel, and her father's name was Ethbaal. Ethbaal means Baal is for him, or Baal exists. So he doesn't just marry into a Baal-accepting family, a Baal-sensitive family. A, this is a Baal-worshipping, uh, promoting, Baal-centered family. And Jezebel's agenda is to bring Baal worship not just into Israel as she comes, but to make it the new national religion. And she's married Ahab, the king, and the king now is using, the king of Israel is using his money and his power to make sure that Baal is mainly worshipped in Israel. And so God is like, whoa, what is up? What is going on with my people here? Now, why is Baal worship such a big deal? Not only is it idolatry, we know the first commandment, no gods before me. It's a problem, but why is Baal worship such a big problem? We need to understand this because there's so much that goes on in the ministry of Elijah that has to do with Baal worship itself. So Baal was, he styled himself as the God who rides on the clouds, who brings the late fall rains, and then he died every year and was reincarnated again, resurrected again, to bring the spring rains, which then would replenish the earth, and not only replenish the earth, would be the bread basket, because everything was agricultural back then, it was the bread basket of all of your economic viability. So basically, Baal worship was, Baal is the God of life, and Baal provides for me. And God is very upset about this. This is not, this is not good. He has the vast majority of his people, generations later, believing that Baal is doing these things. Like most false gods, Baal worship is quite open. Baal is quite open to being incorporated into the worship of other false deities. So you have Ashtoreth. What is that? She's basically a fertility goddess. So not only is Baal providing your food for you now, but through Ashtoreth, that's how you get children. God's not happy about that. Uh, Molech, the god of the Ammonites, this is a God who required child sacrifice. This is also being incorporated into Israel. So that now if you want God to bless you, you know, lowercase g, then you need to sacrifice your own children, literally, to get ahead. Interestingly, the finishing touch of the end of chapter 16, just to show us how bad things were getting, is this, uh, without understanding the context, you wouldn't know how bad this is, but it says, in those days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, in Joshua 6, 26, after God destroyed Jericho, 
he issued a new law in Israel that as a, as a sign of, of his judgment against Jericho, that Jericho should never be rebuilt. And so now you have this, this person, there's such a low regard, such a disregard for God and society that Jericho is being rebuilt by this guy. And it says there that his two sons were sacrificed in the process of the building of Jericho. Now, we're not exactly sure if that's referring to child sacrifice or if it's referring to another way of sacrificing your children to build your career. I don't know. But either way, this is a, low, a very low point in a faithless age. And so you need to know that Elijah was entering in in, a, in an evil age, in a faithless age. And, and we also live in a faithless and evil age in many ways as well. Here are a few observations of parallels between Elijah's day and our day. We nearly always incorporate idols into our lives because of a relationship we have with someone else that we care deeply about. Ahab apparently cared deeply for Jezebel. Sometimes through marriage or through close friendship, we end up minimizing what God has called us to do in order to uh, affirm something and someone else that we love, uh, much to our own detriment. Idolatry rarely comes in, uh, or, or not worshiping God and, and incorporating other, other gods into our faith, in a sense, or other, other views into our faith, rarely ever comes because we read a book or it's some logical um, ascent that we make after thinking it through. It's usually because we love someone, and um, that opens us up like Solomon and like Ahab to evil. Second observation is that though God is unwilling to share himself with idols, idols are happy to be part of a pantheon. Um, you rarely worship one idol if you're an idol worshiper, and we all, um, in some ways, I'm not talking about physical idols in a temple like you might find here in, um, in Morrisville with some of the Indian temples. I'm talking about other ways that we, other things we can serve in life, our career, um, our children's future success, uh, money, power, affirmation. We, we rarely just go after one of them. We go after more than one. And if your God, ultimately, in our culture, one of the main gods that we're told to promote is the God of you the God of yourself, and if you essentially, uh, and your own um, self-actualization and becoming who you are is your main goal in life, really, if that's really it, and even your religion, even your faith in God is really just an effort for you to be your best you, then you'll incorporate anything in. I mean, anything, if, you're, if your own personal actualization is really in control, then anything goes. And you open yourself up to all kinds of um, promises that those idols make, which they actually don't deliver on for you. The third point here, and I thought long and hard about how to say this, is um, about child sacrifice. Um, the deeper we slide into evil, the more willing we are to sacrifice our own children for the sake of our careers, for the sake of our happiness. Um, sometimes we serve our children and say, I, I'm going to put all of my hope in you and we're going to idol out of our children. 
And other times we say, it's too much to have you, or it's too much to um, really take care of you because I'm going to go after my career. Uh, We sacrifice our children, sometimes pastors do it, on the altar of ministry. Um, We often do this where uh, you have like a workaholic mother or father who they love their kids, they really do, but really the most important thing for them is their own personal success, and we sacrifice our children. Um, In certain cases of abortion, this can be why abortions are pursued. I want to be careful because I don't believe that's always why abortions are pursued. But in certain cases where it comes down to um, economic viability or getting ahead in your career or um, just your own desire for personal comfort, there's a warning for us here. It's not something that God is for. Now, there are other reasons why women may have abortions, and I'm not talking about those reasons. I'm talking about the reason, and I'm also talking to the men who are responsible for those pregnancies, where abortions are pursued for personal and economic gain. And I know it's very complicated, It's a very complicated topic, but God is not for abortion, certainly in those particular cases. And I'm happy to talk more about that with you. I want to also speak to the woman who has had an abortion or the man who has caused a pregnancy where there was an abortion. There is so much grace for you in Jesus. I've met with many, a number of women over the years where that decision that you made is one that you deeply regret and, um, and you kind of wonder if there's enough grace in Jesus to cover over that sin. You, whatever, that, whatever you've done, whether it be whatever your, the sin is in your life that you, you think of as like um, maybe the worst thing you've done, and our, our Christian church can, can say that. I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that abortion, if you've had an abortion, that it is the worst thing. I don't believe it's like the worst sin. It's not, it's not the unforgivable sin, okay? You have grace in Jesus Christ. And this is important for us. You, ha- you, have, you cannot out the cross. Whatever that sin is, you can't out the cross of Christ. I want to speak also to the young girl in our congregation who is in middle school or high school or college who might find themselves, I hope not, but um, might find themselves in that, situation where you're pregnant and you you made a mistake and oftentimes the church is the last the very very last place and probably me personally as the senior pastor of the church I'm the, I'm the last person you want to talk to in that situation and you don't have to come talk to me but I want to tell you that in that situation if you ever find yourself there that there is grace for you No, we can't have grace for people in that situation. If we can't love them and help them, then what are we here for? And yet, the stories abound that when, when girls in high school go to clinics and they meet with someone and they say, I'm going to tell you this, but you cannot tell my pastor or my church. It's the first thing they often say. That is a damning statement about the state of grace in the church of Jesus Christ. And so we have to be a place where people who have made mistakes actually still want to come and be a part of this 
community. It's, it's a challenge for us. But the point of this passage is that we live in an age where sacrificing our children in multiple ways has become relatively common to get ahead in life. And we need to be mindful that we, we cannot call what is evil good and good evil. And we also need to be sensitive and listen to each person's story and what is going on with them in that moment. So how does God respond in Elijah's evil age and in our age? Well, first of all, he sends a prophet to us. The second point uh, of the sermon is that God's words are living and powerful in an evil age. So he introduces Elijah in 17.1. So Elijah arrives on the scene, and look at how he's introduced. His introduction reminds us of someone else who will come. So Elijah comes in a dark time. He comes in a dark time. He arrives suddenly on the scene in a period of darkness, and Jesus would arrive in a dark season after 400 years where no prophet had spoken. Elijah comes from an unexpected family, an unexpected place. We learn that he's a Tishbite, the son of Tishbe. We don't know anything about where that is, and we don't know who that person was. And the point, I think, is that his origin story is nondescript and unimpressive. He doesn't hail from a religious school. He just arrives. And similarly, Jesus arrives on the scene, and we learn in Isaiah uh, chapter uh, 52 that he had no form or majesty when Jesus came that would attract us to him. He doesn't arrive because he's the son of some prominent uh, human being. He's the son of a very prominent uh, father in heaven. But he doesn't arrive because he went to some great school. He just arrives on the scene from an unexpected family and place. And Elijah also speaks with God's authority. He impressively begins his ministry without hardly any introduction by saying, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. He's saying, I speak for God. And when Jesus arrived on the scene, particularly throughout the Gospel of John, he's consistently saying, I'm here on behalf of my Father. My words are my Father's words. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus just arrives. He doesn't justify his own authority. He just shows up as the Son of the Father, speaking words into a dark world. So that's Elijah's introduction and how it's like Jesus. Here's Elijah's message. So Elijah is ultra-confident. He says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, that's one of those prophecies where, you know, you, you, if you uh, get like a little uh, fortune cookie and you read it and it's so vague that you're like, oh, that generally applies in almost every situation. Um, or, you know, you hear about, you know, people that are into astrology and they tell you, oh, I had this, uh, this reading today or whatever. And you're like, that could apply to literally almost every situation that's ever existed uh, this is not that way. There's no gray area here. It's like God has said there's not going to be any dew, dew, or rain, no precipitation at all until I say so again. That's one of those things where you can, you can tell. Like, this is either going to be true or false. Let's see how it goes. Because the precipitation happened almost every night in dew form in this climate. Uh, it, the, the rains happened on a cycle at the, in, the, in the autumn and the spring. So we can see, is God going to be faithful or not. If it rains or dews at all, then Yahweh is a fraud, and so is Elijah. But if it does not, then, then Yahweh is true, and Elijah is telling the truth. 
So water features prominently here. Why did God target water? It's because of Baal worship. Because of Baal, Baal said the water and the life comes from me. Baal said, I am raised to life every year to provide for you and your family. And God is saying, okay, let's see if that's true. Let's target water and see what that does to Baal. And so we can look back on this moment with Elijah being introduced on the scene. And it's easy to be like, man, Elijah, dude, you're the man. You're, you're unbelievable. I cannot believe that you stood up to them. But you know what? It probably wasn't like that. I mean, I, I can only imagine how ridiculous Elijah looked in this situation. He's probably like the high school student in the, the local school here, public, private, whatever, who is really actually trying to live their faith out in various situations. And people are like, dude, <laughs> that's so ridiculous. It's, it's, it's so ridiculous. Or, I, you know, I'll kind of tolerate you, but just don't bring up your faith. And that's, that's probably how it felt. I mean, is, is this word, is this word from the Lord, is it going to return void in my life or is God going to come through? I'm sure he was thought of as just being a total nutcase. But J- James, later on, I'm talking about in the New Testament, goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 17, that the drought lasted three and a half years, that there was no water in Israel at all for three and a half years. That means there was no food in Israel either. No water, no food. God's, God holds back all the precipitation. Elijah staked all of his hope on the word of the Lord in an evil age, and so can we. I want to be careful about, I'm saying the word of the Lord a lot here today. So what is the word of the Lord? Uh, I believe it's what is revealed in the scriptures, the Old and New Testament. Okay, all of it. That's what I believe the word of the Lord is. What I don't believe it is, is traditionalism that would also add to the word of God your own traditions. Um, Maybe conservative traditions. I grew up in the South. Uh, There's a lot of things that are not in the Bible that I thought were in the Bible, and you're like, where'd that come from? It's just traditionalism. I'm not talking about that, okay? I'm also not talking about liberalism, where they're like, oh, I believe in the Bible, I just don't believe in, I mean, I got my scissors out, and I, I'm just, I made a Bible for myself. And here you go. I kind of like, I put a black, I put some black marker through a lot of it, but I still believe in God's word. I just don't believe in all of it. I mean, neither one of those things are God's word. So I'm just talking about God's word, okay? Not traditionalism and incorporating other, usually conservative values, and, and not liberalism where you take out other views. I mean, you take out other scriptures, but God's word itself. If we put our hope in the word of the Lord, what we're learning here is that it will not return void in our lives. We learn in, we read in Hebrews 4.12, God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Not only can God bring death through his word or the absence of water, God also brings life through his word. He brings life. He promises us that where he he sends his word, it will not return void. It will bring life to his people. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day um, who is really struggling with uh, trusting in God's word and in all, in all of it. <laughs> um, he would be on more of the liberal side where 
what he is doing as we talked is that he still believes in God's word, but his version of church now is a, is a cafeteria of podcasts, blogs, self-help literature, and a little Bible here and there. And he essentially calls that his church, his, his religious um, place in his life. And as I met with him, um, I just lovingly challenged him because I look at my own life. How many times have there been when I was so sure of what I thought and I was so confident in what I, what I believed, and yet now, as a 46-year-old, I am really certain that I was totally wrong about that. I mean, it's called wisdom. And yet, as a young person, we can just be like, oh, no, man, like, I've put all this together. This all makes sense to me. This is my truth. Man, I'm telling you, that's, a, that's a not a good foundation. That's not a good foundation. I have found there's such a refuge and trusting in God's word. There are many parts of God's word that I find very challenging. I find it very challenging to read what Jesus taught. If we're not consistently challenged by Jesus, surprised at what he says and at what he calls us to do, then we're not really reading the Bible. There are many parts of the Bible. We're like, that doesn't jive with how I feel right now but yet we're called to trust it. And I encourage my friend, I encourage you not to cobble together a wisdom of the age, but to trust in God's word, to trust in God's word as your foundation. Yes, we can absolutely read outside sources, and we should, but you should have one primary source and many secondary sources. So the third and final point this morning is as we live in an evil age and God sends his word to us and we trust it in an evil age or a faithless age, then we also need to expect God to provide for us as we live in this age. That's the promise here, and that's what we see in Elijah. Is God says, Elijah, trust in me. And so in this moment, as he makes this prophecy, the rain starts drying up, the dew starts drying up, and God sends Elijah, he sends him to a brook, the brook Cherith, which is interesting, it's called a wadi, which a wadi is a, is a body of water or a creek that, is, um, that comes from rainfall. It dries up if there's no rain. It's not a river that's constantly flowing by a spring. It needs rainfall. So God sends Elijah there and somehow supernaturally continues to provide for him through this brook for much longer than other people were provi- provided for through rainfall, a miracle. God is also sending ravens to Elijah to bring him food. You have here a kind of a reenactment in a way of what happened in the wilderness for God's people with, with uh, the, the water from the rock and the manna and the quail. We find God providing for Elijah in unexpected ways, in unexpected ways in this wilderness period. And this is important for us because what God is saying is not, it's not just for Elijah, but for the nation of Israel. God is saying, Elijah, I want you to leave the mainstream, and I want you to go to my stream over here. I want you to leave the mainstream, and I want you to go to my stream, and as other people and their water sources are drying up, I'm going to provide for you. When you go and you trust me, I'm going to take the word out of Israel in general, but where the word of God is, and it is with Elijah in this case only, God is saying, look at what happens in microcosmic form where my word is, where my word is, there will be a stream of life 
You can trust it. I mean, otherwise, why, why would you follow? Why would, if, if the promise is evil age, stake your hope on the word of God and destruction. <laughs> no. I mean, we need to be provided for. We need life. This is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is life. Jesus Christ himself was pushed out onto the margins. He left the mainstream, and he became the stream of life for us. When he died on the cross, he paid the price for our sins. But don't you know that Friday on the cross felt like ultimate destruction? It felt like the promises of God were null and void. But Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday. He poured out his life. So for us, for all of us who would come later, the early church, the the persecuted church, the American church, that we would have life in his name as we live by the brook of his grace. Jesus Christ has already provided for you. That's very important for you to understand and remember is that as as you are trusting in the word of the Lord to be faithful to you, God in some ways has already been faithful to you. He's already sent his son. He's already sent Jesus Christ in this evil age to be life for us, to show us the way. He's already sent the son who was perfect to die in our place. But there is grace that continues to flow from the cross of Christ and from the empty tomb of Christ into our lives today. So that when we trust Jesus now, we can find you're probably not going to be actually fed by ravens or you know, given miraculous water from a brook. There's a lot of miracles here and in, in in kings that will follow. But what we have in Jesus Christ is a grace that flows to us in our soul so that Jesus becomes the water of God for us. You need to know that you may feel like, and you, you may have been pushed out onto the margins, you may feel like you've staked everything on the brook of God's grace, and I promise you that God will not let you down. He's already shown you in Jesus Christ that he will not let you down. He's already given you his grace. And he also, in whatever you face in life, he will provide for you. Now, that that provision may not look exactly like what you think it's going to look like. Um, your, your exact prayer request may not get answered in the way that you, you say it, but God will provide for you. A story on this. Uh, I have children that are in the public school system, and um, there are some good things about that, and there are some challenging things about that, just like wherever you have your kids in school. So I have two boys in high school at Panther Creek High School, and um, the other day, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine at another church, and he holds up a picture of my son with a teacher uh, that's his teacher in, in public school. Uh, her name's Mrs. Lee. And he says, you don't know what an encouragement your son has been to, to my, this member of my church who's a teacher at Panther Creek. And I'm like, what? And so uh, I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, I mean... It's just been so encouraging. I was like, that's crazy because my son says that Mrs. Lee has been just such a lifeline for him as he tries to live out his faith, as he, as, he want, as he wants to live faithfully as a Christian, to have a Christian teacher in school for him and that they've gotten to know each other, that's crazy because all I've heard about Mrs. Lee is how encouraging she's been for me. And that's how God provides. I had no idea who Mrs. Lee was. I you know, as I send my kids off to school or whatever, I, you know, you pray that they have teachers, that some of them might know the Lord. 
But God provides. God provides for us. I have to say, too, this was in a time in my, my son's life that was very challenging. And so my view of what God is doing was mainly like, this is really a hard time. And so to hear God's provision and going like, wow, like, how many prayers have I prayed? I didn't know how God was going to take care of this situation, but the Lord provides for us when we live by the brook of his grace, often in unlikely ways. So where is God calling you to trust him today? And I'll close with this. In this faithless age, how can we be faithful to him? I'm sure there's many ways, but I'll just give you three. First of all, going back to that opening illustration, you may feel like a child, that child that's drifting down the beach. And honestly, as you listen to this, you're like, man, I, there, there really are many ways that I haven't really returned to my father. Um, I haven't really been putting my hope in God's word. I've just been pulling together a bunch of different uh, thoughts and worldviews and calling it my, my faith. And I would encourage you to return to your father. It may not feel dangerous to you, but you're drifting and you need to return to him. Maybe you've lost touch with the word of God in your life. And so for me to talk about the word of God, I mean, you're not really someone who's actively studying God's word. And, and you wouldn't really know what God thinks about all kinds of things because, frankly, the word of God is not playing a very prominent place in your life. There could be reasons for that. Maybe you've met really weird traditionalists that have incorporated a lot of other ideas into Christianity. Or maybe you're around a bunch of people who are more liberal that say constantly to you how ridiculous it is to be a Christian, actually believe God's word. But I would encourage you to return to God's word and to leave all of that, you know, all the, the, the buzzing that goes around your ears and just return to God's word and say, God, what does it look like to be faithful to you here? And the final thing is this. Maybe you're suffering because you have aligned yourself with God in a faithless age. Maybe you're suffering. Look at Elijah. Even though he was faithful to God, he did not totally escape the consequences of the sin that was around him. He was still affected. He still had to go live in the wilderness by a river. Look at Jesus. He was perfect in his obedience, and he got pushed out to the margins. There are consequences for suffering. And listen, when we suffer for Christ, we don't do it perfectly. There's only one person who's done that. Maybe you look at your life and be like, yeah, I feel like I've been suffering. I have been, and I've been sinning. There is abundant grace for you in that place. If you've gotten cynical, you've gotten mad, you've given up hope, there's a, there's a time where you can return to Christ because his grace is sufficient for you. But you also need to know this, that when you are suffering for following Christ at work, in your school, in your neighborhood, you are in the dead center of God's grace for you because this is what all of the prophets before you have experienced. We receive suffering for following Jesus, but yet God in that place, as we leave the mainstream and go to the stream of God's grace, he does provide for us in that place. You can be sure that God has not forgotten you, that even now you are by the brook of his grace, and he is providing for you in this moment. Let me pray. Father, um, I admit we've covered a lot today, and so um, 
I do pray that your word spoken here in 1 Kings 16 and 17 will not return void in our lives, Father, that uh, perhaps it's because there's just a lot here and it's hard to process or perhaps it's the hardness of our hearts where we just don't want to receive your word. Lord, I pray that in this moment and in this series in general, that you would correct in my life and in our lives, Lord, where we've gone off course, that we would return to the Father of our souls and live, that we would find your word to be lovely and beautiful and full of grace. Yes, even though it brings sometimes truth to our souls that means we need a corrective. God, would you be merciful to us? Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, that he's been the perfect son for us already and that we can experience his grace as we travel this road of seeking to be faithful in a faithless age. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.